0: Welcome to What the Risk, Exposing Business Blind Spots, an interview-based podcast series that discusses risk management topics. Have you ever been blindsided in a business situation? Think about your entire computer system going down, a supplier that cannot deliver, or your biggest customer declaring bankruptcy, or your new marketing strategy completely missing the mark. These are visceral what the risk moments. Your exact words may be different, but the feeling is the same. When everyone's eyes are focused on the next sale, high impact, low visibility risks often get overlooked. We call these blind spots, and these blind spots cause what the risk moments. I am your host, Larry Gordon of Gordon Risk Solutions. Join us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and empower you to turn the what the risk moments into I've got this victories. Welcome to episode 104, the first season, fourth episode. It's common knowledge that a small percentage of startups really succeed or thrive. In today's financing and capital raising environment for growth and early stage companies, investors are being cautious with their resources. So founders that are looking for capital really need to raise their game and better understand how they're being evaluated. Our guest today is uniquely qualified to help us unpack these risks from his vantage point as an early-stage investor. Let's talk about the blind spots associated with early-stage companies and help you become a statistic of success. Mark November is an impact investor that has been operating businesses for over 50 years. He started when he was eight years old. He is a board member, founder, accelerator, mentor, runs his family office, and is a moonshot investor. Mark is currently the founder of Venture Starters the largest community of startup founders, investors, and people that want to join startup teams. Mark, welcome to the What the Risk podcast. We're glad you're here.
1: My pleasure.
0: One of the things, Mark, is you've been in a lot of different industries over your career, and that's a real value when it comes to being an investor. Can you talk about some of those industries and how you made the transition between them?
1: Uh, sure. I've been a serial entrepreneur since I, like you mentioned, eight years old, and I've been trying one business after another, and eventually I get bored of them or sell them or move on. But um, highlights would include, um, as a teenager, I was interested in consumer products. As a late teen, early 20s, I was a music producer um, and event producer um, focusing on uh, nationally known recording acts and/or comedians, um, which I was um, engaged in promoting, I shifted models after graduating college to uh, moving up to um, Hollywood and getting involved in the movie and the um, television industries, and that was fun for me for about twelve years. But and I am known to many for work that my companies did on movies like The Lion King, Jurassic Park, the Star Trek uh, franchise, The Simpsons. Um, but people seem to know me more for uh, being one of the owners of a of manufacturer, uh, of a number of manufacturing companies of collectible trading cards. So those of you who may have purchased baseball, major league baseball cards or other types of collectible trading cards, There's a chance you purchased them from one of the companies that I either launched or owned, including uh, Donruss, which was the second company in America to manufacture trading cards, which I bought into in the 90s and then sold, and Skybox, which we eventually sold to Marvel. And then... After that, I got involved and interested in technology companies and medical devices and ways to, you know, solve health problems and um, climate change. And so I've I've been shifting from lots of different industries. And as a result of all of that, it led me to um, forming venture starters which has evolved into one of the largest communities on the planet of founders, investors, and people who are looking to help startups. And as a result of, of Venture Starters, I have a unique vantage point of what's going on in the startup ecosystem.
0: Well, that's great. So I want to talk a lot more about Venture Starters, but I want to go back to all these industries that you've been in. Which did you find most fun?
1: They all were fun at first. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't do anything unless I'm having fun at first. The challenge for me is that after I somewhat master or have achieved um, certain levels of success, I tend to get bored and then want to go and climb a new mountain. So you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are better suited for the long um, the long game. And you know, they start a company and they're happy to stick with that for decades. That's not really me. Um, you know, I, I'm always interested in challenging myself to learn and do something different. And once I've achieved some level of success or failure, because there's been failures along the road as well, which were great learning experiences. Um, you know, I'm always looking for something new. And I think that also is one of the reasons I, I love the venture starters community is 50 founders pitch me every week. So I get to see new things every week that might delight and excite me.
0: Well, terrific. So what what's really the motivation or the inspiration that you go by? And was there a particular person that provided inspiration for you?
1: good questions um there wasn't a particular person i would say my parents who were entrepreneurial gave me um the confidence that it was okay to go and do something where i wasn't working for a paycheck every single week and was putting myself in a a more high risk situation than the low risk of having paycheck um confidence um with regard to Uh, What was the other question? I'm sorry.
0: Motivation or inspiration? And then if you had a particular person that inspired you.
1: My motivation. I think it's a combination of um, what problem am I solving? And if it's a really significant problem, it makes me feel fantastic that I'm involved in trying to solve it. And the people. So uh, I want to work with and spend time with certain types of people and if i'm excited and inspired by the people that i meet on that journey then i stay on that journey and if i'm not excited by those people um, or the journey itself i get off the journey and find another journey for those of you who tried Um, startups and it hasn't worked for you it just might simply mean that that journey wasn't the right one for you but another one is and one thing that I have discovered is even when there's disappointment and there's a startup or a project that I didn't embark on that didn't go well if I give myself a chance to shake it off and move into something new um, it doesn't mean that I you know I won't succeed It just it just helps fuel me to want to succeed even more because one journey didn't work. And then the next one oftentimes is the one that is like a highlight of your career. So a lot of this is, I want to say, using a sports terminology, especially since we manufactured hockey trading cards for a while, (laughs) is shots on goal. You know, to some degree, you do need to take a number of shots on goal to score a goal. And in hockey, it's not likely that you're or soccer, that every single shot on goal is going to go in the goal. There's going to be a lot of disappointments where they get blocked. It doesn't go in but if you keep shooting, you can get to the goal. And that's one of my lessons is I don't give up easy, um, but you have to also know when to give up.
0: Well, those are inspiring words. Thank you. I appreciate that. So when you have these big projects, you also have a lot of big challenges. What was the most significant challenge you've had and how did you go about it?
1: I don't wanna name names of people because I literally could write a, a few books on how to lose money in the startup <laughs> community. Um, because I've invested in a lot of deals that didn't go in the right direction. But without naming names, I would say this. Um, there are occasionally been, there have been, there occasionally have been inventors who when I was first starting to get involved in investing in companies that I wasn't running mm-hmm. or, or, or chief uh, um, architect of. There are some inventor types out there that hold and cling to the power. They want to be the CEO. They want to be the controlling influence over the whole thing. And I didn't recognize or learn um, I didn't recognize or learn um, lessons until later that uh, inventors tend not to be very good at running companies. And so I would say some of the most challenging moments of my startup experience have been where I've literally had to um, disconnect from a project or leave a startup, even if I've invested money and time into it, because I came to the realization that the inventor who wants to remain the final decision maker and the CEO of the company was going to prevent its eventual success, was gonna get in the way of the success of the invention that they actually created. And it was always very difficult and um, heartbreaking to have to walk away from those situations especially when it became obvious that the inventor wasn't listening and wouldn't learn and wasn't open to my suggestions that we replace them and find another CEO that's a business CEO to run and scale the company rather than an inventor CEO who typically inventor CEOs aren't ideal. Many of these folks that I've met along my journey of investing are very, very smart and talented people. And some of them seem to have the inclination or the idea that because they're so smart in one thing, like inventing, they must naturally be just as smart in any other aspect of business, even if they've had no business experience, have bring no wisdom, have had no failures to rely on for you know judgment and advice. And those type of folks I have come to learn are not investable for me. Now they may be investable for other investors, but for me the I I would tend to walk away or I started to walk away from those um investments that I was making and those inventors in particular with these characteristic traits because it seemed to me that I was always losing losing time, losing momentum, losing money, but mostly time and I only my time is my most valuable contribution to most of these startups. My money is very important too, but oftentimes it's what I can contribute in other ways that makes or breaks these companies. And for the inventors that don't see that, and they are very focused on you know, uh, what they believe are the right ways to do something based on no previous experience in business, that's a really difficult environment for me, somebody like myself where I'm creative and I and I want to have my fingerprints on my investments. Um, and so as a result of mistakes I made with inventors, I now don't invest in inventor-led companies unless that inventor is willing to consider being replaced by somebody who would be better at them on the business side. My personal favorite business model to invest in is where everybody stays in the lane where they actually are skilled and they know what they're doing. And when they jump into other lanes and try and pretend to be, for example, fundraising expert, inventor now engineering type, chemistry, biology type, all of a sudden now is thinking, I'm gonna learn how to be fundraising expert. Well, that doesn't necessarily work because investors are looking for a whole lot of things out of the, the founders, the CEOs, and they can't usually answer a lot of the questions that investors like me have. And as a result, those companies tend to get stuck and the inventor is afraid to give up control, doesn't wanna have to answer to anybody. So those models are particularly painful and frustrating because I have seen a lot of amazing technologies that have been stranded. Technologies that the world actually needs that are stranded because the inventor essentially self-sabotaged the startup that they hope to bring, you know, to market. And um, and that's one of the I would say the, the biggest disappointments of that I've witnessed over the now four decades of investing in startups.
0: Well, That's some really great wisdom. One of the other questions I was going to ask you is you've heard the expression bet on the jockey, not on the horse. And so when you think about the people that you've bet on, describe the characteristics that really give you comfort uh, as you make your investments.
1: So it's a combination of a few things. So everybody who invests are very, are different type of investors. I am not a silent investor. And for those that are silent investors, they have a different investment thesis than I do. One of my theses for me is, I want to like the person that I'm going to be working with. I'm going to be spending a lot of hours with them, trying to help them um, grow the this new venture, whatever it is that we're doing together. And so um, I'm looking for people who I personally believe I am compatible with on a personality level so that an exchange of ideas is possible without there being a lot of walls and friction. And I've come to learn that over a lot of years of investing, that it's oftentimes better for me to miss an opportunity because I feel like my personality isn't going to complement or blend well with the current uh, leadership of that company um and and that's okay now there was a time where i was afraid to miss anything and i would try and invest time money energy into the next thing that was there even though i saw all the red flags in the leadership team um but i used to come from a perspective where i felt i could influence and or modify behavior and to some degree, I can a little bit at times, um, but it turns out there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into that process, and it is fraught with risk because it's not necessarily a sure thing that that will happen. That means I'm investing in building a relationship, st- starting with some flawed personality characteristics. That it, these are again subjective, my opinions. Not that anybody else would look at these individuals and see the exact same thing. But, you know, I'm trying to um, make sure, especially now that I'm in my 60s, that I spend my time with the people that I truly want to, and even if I might make a little bit less money on those investments, I'm going to be happier in the long run than trying to spend my time with people who I have friction or conflict with or I'm disappointed in or they won't listen to what I have to say. And even if they listen and choose to go in a different direction, I'm still fine with that and understand that that's a risk as an investor. But I want to at least be heard because oftentimes I have more – uh, life experience, business life experiences to draw upon than the current founding team. Not always. I mean, I would prefer to find a founder who has already had at least one successful exit, has already managed investor money before and knows what that's all about. I mean, I would prefer these things. I would prefer a founder who actually has a family and friends network that's strong enough that they can raise all the money that's needed except for the last check. And my check is the last one in the door. Where I fear and have great uh, discomfort is when the founder um, uh, doesn't really know anybody when it comes to the investment side. And so there's basically this uncomfortable model where they're asking me to put my money in. And I know in advance that if when they exhaust my money, they're gonna be out pitching total strangers for the next check. And that typically just doesn't work for me. I rarely find that that model has a good outcome for any of the investors. So I tend to be of the opinion that if the team doesn't know the right people, recruit some people to join the team who have a family and friends network that is golden and can help the company always be pitching through warm introductions instead of cold calling and pitching to total strangers. And that model works better for me. So when I find innovators that are open minded to the idea that maybe the founding team needs to add some talent. And I get that most of these founders, their inclination is, no, I don't want to give up equity. I've been told, you know, hold hold on to as much as you can. you know, but if the team isn't able to achieve and execute properly, you know, and I'll give a team a chance to show me if they can or not. I, I make snap decisions all the time. Some are right, some are totally wrong. And people have surprised me along the way. But now, you know, I, I like to watch and see, and if I can see that they actually can execute or in, or, pivot a lot most startups actually do need to pivot at least once during the time i'm an investor in order to make the company successful they might start off with one business plan and have an idea but as they go they might choose to pivot for a more successful or easier uh, pathway to try and achieve revenues or a product launch successfully or a bunch of other things And I am more interested in finding teams that know how to and can pivot where needed rather than the rhinoceros approach, which is we're just going to, here it is, we're looking at where we're heading and we're just not going to look at anything else and we're just charge, charge ahead. Those charge ahead teams typically end up tripping and falling all over themselves because it is very difficult to predict a pathway and a, um, a business model um, that isn't isn't going to be fraught with some surprises. So and knowing that there's these surprises that'll always most likely enter into the market, I love the teams that at least can sidestep, change, reflect, adapt, you know, make a new plan based on new information, but preferably they make a new plan based on new people coming into the model who can, with one phone call, open up easier doors to either get them funded or get their sales and revenues going. And, you know, at the end of the day, I see companies as being, um, their true value is who they personally know Mm -hmm. there's a lot of companies that you know have great ideas there's a lot of companies with um ip and i don't want to say that ideas are a dime a dozen but when you see as many pitches as i I see there's just so much out there so only one or two or three of the teams in any particular category are going to be successful the rest of them are going to be either too late miss the market timing or they're just the wrong team they can't execute execution is like absolutely like you know is so critical so and the way that you execute is knowing the right people if you only know how to invent something. And you don't like, for instance, you are built, you're making a consumer product and you'd love to sell it at Walmart. I'm just giving an example. Yet nobody on your team knows the buyer for that category at Walmart. I don't see the pathway to revenues. And when I hear um, innovators and founders pitch this idea that if we build it, they will come
0: Field of dreams. They
1: don't always come. So, you know, I'd rather see a team that had somebody on it that knew the buyers that had or they now it doesn't mean a full time person. This could be an advisory role. You know, you don't need to stack your team with a ton of full time people when you're a startup. You know, you just need to have the right people that when um, the, the company gets stuck, you can call on that person. And with one phone call, that person can get you unstuck. If you can surround yourself with those type of people who are movers and shakers they're in the one percenter crowd that you know know enough of the right people in any particular category they have unusual expertise unusual um, connections if you can add them even as just mentors advisors on a board an advisory board then all of a sudden your team looks a lot more interesting to me and i can see that at least there's pathways to the revenue But um, so many times founders are myopically focused on the expenses that they envision that they need to cover over the next year or two. And so when they pitch investors like me, what they're really saying is, this is my run rate. Here's my burn and my monthly burn. I want you to pay for that. And I'm really not interested in paying for their burn. What I'm interested in paying for is if you can say in two years, we will start to achieve revenues of this through this sales or this direction. And we need this amount of money to cover expenses to get to that and all eyes are on the prize, which is the revenue, the new, the customers that you're gonna acquire, the big leap forward to take the company from no traction to lots of traction. And I'm not as interested in the companies that, you know, basically tell me this is how much money we need to spend and burn over a period of time. And trust me, as soon as we do this, the revenue will come and then they come up with these, you know, ridiculous projections of revenue when there's nobody on the team who knows how to sell or has uh, created that level of revenue ever in their previous career. You know, and none of it like looks like it's really making sense to me. So, um I, anyways, I could talk about that topic endlessly, but um, go ahead with more questions because I don't want to get too sidetracked.
0: <laughs> well, I think you're going down the path that I was pushing for in that uh, when you think about the advisory board, you think about a board of directors, you think about those resources that you're talking about. How do you recommend someone who is the inventor and is open to bringing on those uh, talents, and but they don't have that now? How do you encourage them to go out and find those skills to be part of their ecosystem?
1: So um, a great question. Um, Let me see how to frame this. The most successful companies in the world all have an exceptional human resource department those companies didn't become as successful as they became without the need of really great talent. And that means you have to have people who are recruiting great talent. It turns out that startups being so fragile as they are, they need human resource recruiting talent more than even companies that are now larger than them because the recruiting function could be the difference between life or death, like company out of business so i basically try and tell all the startups to always be in recruitment mode now what does that mean that means different things to different people some founding teams already have personal relationships with a lot of people and they should explore that to see who might be a good fit but we don't really need your chief financial officer to be a friend if that person isn't gonna add any value other than their pictures in the deck and a title. What we need is if that's the if that's the consideration is we're gonna bring in, and I'm just using Chief Financial Officer sure. as an example. It seems to me that the CFO that you want is somebody who personally knows investors because you wanna have that relationship between this key role and your investors to be as solid as possible. And it will also impact when it comes to negotiating dilution because investors are willing to accept a smaller valuation in the company and less stock or I should say higher valuation in the company and less stock. Um, If they know somebody on the team, they will give them a straight answer as to what's going on in the inside. And basically that mitigates the risk a little bit because now they're not investing in total strangers. They at least know somebody on the team. So there's the networking effect for finding recruiter, uh, for recruiting. And then there's the other suggestion I make to almost every single startup, which is, and this just really occurred in the last 12, 14 years, LinkedIn became a marvelous machine a marvelous community, a marvelous machine, a marvelous, it's just a marvel, quite frankly. Um, and I'll give you an example, an opportunity to build a hydropower project in Honduras. Um, Honduras is probably among the riskiest nations in all of the Americas to do any business in for a variety of reasons. Um, but that said, um, I didn't know Spanish and I would never done hydropower before. So essentially what I did is I leveraged LinkedIn to find myself, the team that we needed, the partners that we needed, and that led to the money we needed in order to build it and commission it and turn it into a success, which we did. But if it wasn't for LinkedIn, I would have never been able to find that team. You know, I wouldn't have been able to put together what was needed in order for, um, uh, for, for the, uh, a positive outcome to take place. Now, this is going back into 2010, 2011, 2012, when I was essentially learning how to use the LinkedIn machine to my advantage. Fast forward to recently and COVID time, I've been spending a lot more time running now paid ads on LinkedIn in the jobs portal for startups. And I suggest to all startups that they try this because if you need an advisory board, run ads for a member of the advisory board on LinkedIn and see if you can attract the people who will be able to help you most. You don't have to offer salaries. There are ways to structure these. I'll give you an example of an advisory board model that I just did with one of the companies that um, I'm affiliated with. And essentially what we did is we offered what um, a half of 1% equity to each of four uh, members of an advisory board on a 48-month, four-year vesting schedule. So over four years, they're going to earn a half of 1%. And we have the ability to say to them after 60 or 90 days, after we've had a trial period with them, and they've tried to introduce us to their investor friends or their distribution friends or whatever whoever their friends are i'm essentially building advisory boards based on who do they personally know who can they introduce us to and if they can produce some outstanding results in the first 60 to 90 days we'll keep them in fact we might even accelerate their Um, equity that they're earning instead of four years, boom, they get it all up front now because they helped us raise the money we needed. And, you know, and we want to create an incentive and a win-win in both directions. But I don't structure these in a way where they're making a percentage of money raised that creates SEC violations, unless you happen to have a Security 7 license. But the But by forming a advisory board where the vesting schedule is over years, everybody gets a chance to essentially experiment and do a trial period of a month to three months to see if the fit is right. And the cost to the founding team is very, very minimal if it doesn't work out. But the upside potential is huge because if you bring people on who know the right people, all of a sudden the company goes from being stuck to unstuck. And how valuable is that? How valuable is it to have somebody who can make a call to a friend and get that friend interested in getting on a phone call with the founder, and now there's a warm introduction when you're asking an investor for money instead of going to a beauty pageant event and pitching with 50 other founders or submitting your deck through email when they're receiving 50 other emails that week you know, or getting in line with all the rest of them, you know, and all of a sudden then the importance of how pretty your deck is and how it stands out and all these intangibles that at the end of the day, don't actually tell anybody or inform anybody as to whether the business is gonna succeed or not. All those things start to have to come into play, which means you're banking on luck. And so to de-risk all of this and eliminate the I'm banking on luck approach, by bringing new fresh people into the team who have friends and family connections that are golden and trying those out and avoiding the pitching total strangers and trying those pathways putting all your energy into surrounding yourself with people with the right family and friends networks and if they don't work out great handshake you got a little bit of equity great to have you around still might use you in the future, but you know, it didn't work out next and then bring some more people in who have their own family and friends networks. You will eventually find the right connections to people where you can move the company forward and make things happen. And to me, that model helps to de-risk. It's not perfect model, but it helps de-risk the deals. And, And when I ask the founder, you know uh, how are you going to be raising money after you exhaust my check i finally at least get an answer that makes some sense to me which is we have this amazing advisory board team focusing on fundraising and they know great people and as you can see we've already raised some money from some of their friends and we're going to continue to go down that path as well and they know people and we're pitching to warm introductions. We're not doing a cold calling or, you know, showing up to accelerator events or whatever it is that they might have been telling or that was their story before they started down this path. That will make them look different to me. Now, again, it's all subjective. Not every investor is me or thinks like me, but I've lost so much money on a, on so many of these founder types that I'm now looking for certain characteristic traits in where they are in order for me to personally feel comfortable. And I've learned this the hard way, having, you know, believed in in what they told me, believed in their dream. But, you know, execution is everything. And if they don't know anybody, then all they have is this great idea and this great dream and the winning combination of startups is the having both that as half of the model and then the other half is we actually know a ton of the right people and it turns out that the teams that know the right people even if they don't have that great of a business model they're going to be more likely to survive and actually be able to return an, a, a, you know some profit to the investors Whereas the guys that have, it could be the best dream in the world, the best idea in the world, the best solution in the world. If they don't know anybody, it's never gonna get out of the garage. You would be amazed at how many um, solutions I have witnessed that are stuck in a garage that never got out of the garage that literally could have changed the planet as we know it. Unfortunately, a lot of those innovators, were their thought pattern was, My company is worth a billion dollars because look at what we're going to do for the world. And there is no billion dollar valuation when you're stuck in a garage. That is not true. (laughs) And so there's a lot of disconnects and misunderstanding that just because you build it, they aren't always going to come. That we build it, they come theory. That model is not a successful business model. That is an inventor model. That is a fallacy that has been you know shopped to a bunch of inventors that you know if you just simply solve the problem somehow the world will come to you and riches will come to you it's nothing like that at all there are so many steps involved in getting even poor ideas to be successful over great ideas that end up in the trash heap Uh, it comes down to execution and the team making the right decisions and oftentimes the team pivoting because the original vision may or may not have been the correct vision You know, and if you look at the history of just companies that are household names and you look at what they first started out in business doing, you'd be surprised that they originally started doing something completely different than what you now know them to be. So you need everybody who is successful, you know, has to have that ability to be flexible and change and adapt to market conditions and not be stubborn and blockheaded about, you know, how to get to the finish line, especially for those that have never gotten to an exit before. You know, if you've never taken a company to an exit, don't tell me, you know, for certain that it's got to be this way or no way, because why, how do you know (laughs) you have never done this even once before in your life? you know and and a founder that basically says we're going to have 400 million in revenue by year four or whatever these huge numbers are, and they've never managed even $100,000 in revenue in their entire career, and now they're gonna throw these huge numbers at us as if somehow that's gonna happen, that's not the way the real world works. And you can't just take a percentage of what the total addressable market could be and assume that you're gonna capture that if you've never done that before, or you don't have the right team, so you know, there' a lot of my uh, pet peeves with uh, founder pitches comes down to their misunderstanding of risk. And I'm glad we're talking about risk on this show because I will tell you my number. The first question that I ask most founders um, always, uh, sort of, not always, generally surprises them. It isn't about how much money we're going to make as a company and how much money I'm going to make as an investor. My first question to a founder usually is what happens to my investment if you die in a car accident tomorrow. Most of these founders are like, "Oh, because they're they're the whole business. It was in their head. They're the they're the they're the key that makes the whole thing work." And then after we talk about that question, then my next question is are you married? Okay, if you're married, does this mean that if you die in a car accident tomorrow, your wife who knows nothing about business is now making final decision-making on everything that's business-related because you have the majority stock? Is that what how this company is set up? I've actually had the experience of um, investing in an inventor who did pass away during the process of everything. And I almost invested in one, which I didn't, but I was close to the team, where it was very unfortunate in that case, a 42-year-old who was the CEO of the company died of a heart attack and nobody knew he had a heart disease or had any, you know, and, Mm. and so it is possible to actually face this as a risk. And when you start to basically, you know, look at all the risks that are involved in investing in an early stage company, There's a lot of risk there that founders don't even recognize and they don't see. And yet they may try and convince me that their company is worth 2 million or 5 million or a hundred million dollars. You know, when they have no traction, they have no money in the bank, they don't even have the right team to execute. And yet, they may have a patent sitting that they're sitting on. That does not make you worth that much money. I can tell you, that's not the way the real world works. You may find investors who are foolish who will believe that, but the seasoned people who've been around the block and lost money, and you know, and and have at least some wisdom and instincts about these things, they're not going to buy into your valuations unless you can really defend them properly. Most of the times, the numbers that come out of um the founders they literally pull out of their ass and when you you know and i i get that you actually have to because it's hard when you're starting a company to justify all these numbers but at the same time um understand that there's real risk to an investor to come in real early 19 out of 20 of you companies are gonna are gonna bite the dust and um, some of you will thankfully go out of business, but relatively quickly. And others of you will drag a whole group of people along for a dream for many, many years until it finally does burst. And that's even worse in a way because, you know, basically everybody got dragged along for this long, painful period of time. There's a number of inventors and founders that actually should throw in the towel. They just don't know it. And they're gonna, some of them are gonna end up divorced. And in other bad situations as a result of clinging to a dream that without being able to modify the dream and bring others into the team that actually, you know, can make the dream come true and being open minded to what you're good at and what you're not good at. So, you know, if you're good at something, talk about what you're good at. If you're not good at these other things, bring other people in who are good at those to help address those so we all can feel comfortable that the team knows what they're talking about. So when you step, step way outside of the scope of what you really know, which typically ends up being where you start to trip yourself up. And also another thing that, you know, founders need to be aware is that Investors like me, we're picking up on a lot of intangible things that you're not focused on. It isn't just um, the way you present it. It's not just your deck being a certain way. It's not that the words flow in a certain way. It's, It's small things like, how do you dress to pitch me? I had a guy not long ago who dressed in a tank top to pitch me. I'm never going to invest in a guy that shows up in a tank top to pitch me. Ever doesn't matter whether he has a machine that makes gold bars out of thin air <laughs> by snapping his fingers. I don't care. I'm not going to invest in a guy who shows up like that. And it's the, and you know and also you know um, know know how to explain what your company does in the first sixty seconds maybe 90 seconds if i'm still trying to figure out what you do for a living what the business is after you've started to talk for a minute or two you've lost me my brain is moving on to the next topic in my head and i and then by the time you get around to something that i might be interested in listening to you already lost me so you know the there are a number of things that that founders need to understand that it isn't just The deck, the pitch, like a lot of accelerators are keen on taking your money to make a beautiful document that you're going to send around and pitch to total strangers. How did that help you? it doesn't it would be better to get advisors on your team who are going to create warm introductions who will say this is the deck that i would send to my friend it should look like this and then you design a deck based on what the friend is suggesting because every investor wants to see something different i know investors that only want to see one page that's it they don't even want to go to a deck they just want to see quick glance one page 30 seconds and just to see if they're interested in diving deeper then they might look at a deck you know and i have other friends um, that basically they want to see uh, a deck it can't be more than 10 slides they're not going to be interested and the team page is the number one page they want to go look at They're investing in teams. They want to look at the team page. And if the team page looks like it's got a bunch of people in it who currently work for Fortune 500 companies, and the only way we as a startup are going to be able to convince them to come and work for a startup is to pay the same salaries that these Fortune 500 companies are paying, and yet we have no traction and we are a startup. And so the only way I get that team is to overpay because startups can't afford those kind of salaries, then those teams make no sense to me. So I don't need a lot of pictures of people who are full time for, you know, Apple, IBM, all these big names. It doesn't matter to me. I see that as problematic unless these people are willing to jump ship for equity, mostly equity, bootstrapping, low salaries, minimal income, and they're at risk too. You know, I'm always looking for the teams that are asking for full salaries, and yet they want to also own a bunch of the money. So they're at no risk. And I'm the only one at risk. That doesn't work for me. I'm interested in a shared risk. So, you know, if I'm gonna be in pain while this thing is um, being developed, you should be in a little pain yourself too. Doesn't mean that we like can't get you enough money to like live, Uh, we know you have rent, but you know, I'm I'm not interested in somebody who needs a six figure salary to run these companies and also hoard a bunch of stock. That doesn't make any sense to me in my mind. And so there's all these intangible small things the cap table and the way that the cap tables are set up for founders is oftentimes their the number one one of their biggest problems you know if you have a major somebody who has a majority of stock a large 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 holding of stock in this venture you know that is problematic If you have a team that basically is very small and all the stock is in the hands of two, three people, that is usually not a good sign unless you set aside a large amount of stock that's ready to go to acquire talent and bring in the people that are coming in. There's a lot of reasons why there are red flags and, and, and justifications not to invest. And founders typically are focused on not enough of the right ones to even get through, you know, a five or a 10 minute um, uh, Q&A session with a real investor. Um, it's easy to break these guys, and I don't wanna say guys, these people, cause I'm, I'm very big into promoting women CEO founders, but basically it's, it's sometimes almost too easy to find a number of red flags and faults with just asking a certain number of questions to the existing founding team, and all it takes right now in today's market is one red flag to not want to invest, which is why family and friends networks are so critical. Family and friends networks will give the founding team a little bit more wiggle room there, if there's a red flag or two, they might believe that the team can fix those red flags because they know somebody on the team. They're doing it because they want to support a friend of theirs and take a chance that 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 this can turn into something. They trust somebody. You know, my best advice for 2023 is try to the best extent possible to surround yourself with the family and friends, warm introductions, and you know, and skip the investors like me when I'm cold call, cold pitched, and I'm looking at somebody for the very first time, and then I ask a series of about 10 or 12 questions, and all of a sudden I easily find the red flag, I'm gone. It doesn't matter what you do, I'm just gone. And everybody else, I don't say everybody, I shouldn't. Most of the investors are gonna feel similarly if they've been around the block a long time. You can always find new angel investors out there that have done very little angel investing, and they'll still be interested. I don't wanna discount you know, that, you know, um, those people are still there, keep pitching them. But if you're looking for real serious amounts of money, and I'm talking about, you know, over $250,000, if you're looking for some pretty big chunks of money, that level of investor tends to have been around the block a few times and have lost money on innovators already. So you need to be able to make sure that those investors um, you know, their questions essentially are satisfied without these easy red flag issues coming forward. What Red flag issue number one, where's the pathway to revenues? Just don't show me the pathway to expenses. Most founders can't even get past that one. You know, then when we start breaking down the team and all the pictures on the team, are these people really going to be joining the team or do we have to pay them a fortune to get them on the team? Don't put their picture in the deck. I don't want to see it if it's going to cost us 250000 to pull somebody out of, you know, Amazon to come and work for us because that's what they're getting right now. That's not who I. I don't want to pay for that you know also you know does the team have some wisdom on it in some way shape or form i'm not keen on paying for learning curves go get your own college education and pay for it (laughs) you know it's not i mean i you know i would rather have a. okay and here's another thing your ceo doesn't have to be the ceo that's going to get you to the exit understand that almost every startup that uh, every startup that was successful had multiple CEOs from the time that they started as a company to the time that they exited. There's truly a group of talented people who can come in and scale a company from 50 million revenue plus, you know, and you need those type of people at the point where you're getting to certain levels of revenue. You can't just keep, you know, I mean, there's uh, sure there's always these oddball characters where you have like an Elon Musk who um you know he's both an inventor and he can be ceo but it turns out he also got i believe it was a business degree from wharton so it wasn't that he wasn't just an inventor he's also got some business skills but in most cases the inventor doesn't have the business skills that you need and you're going to need multiple ceos over a period of time so why not bring on an interim CEO now, who essentially his number one job is to get the startup funded and through all the testing and to the point of traction. And then maybe you have, that person might step off the CEO role Uh, role into a board member role or some other role in the company when you're at a point where you need somebody who can actually scale the company up. You've got revenues, you have to, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, different startups have different times and hit different milestones that then trigger the need for a better team than what you have. But when I see teams that essentially um, you know, they're going to be locked in, they're not moving, they're emotionally attached to their titles, and they're not in it for the equity, they're in it for the titles and a whole bunch of other things. Those are usually a bunch of red flags for me personally. Anyway, I probably didn't even answer your original question, which I, <laughs> I forgot. And I'm so sorry, Larry.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're doing a great job imparting really important information for the our viewers, the founders, other investors as they go through this. And I want to recap something you said. We were talking about, good thing we're talking about risk here. And uh, to drive the point home, if you have two people coming to pitch you and they have the same deck, they have the same hockey stick projections, the same everything, same marketing plan, but one gives you much more detail on a risk assessment. This is, these are my risks. This is what I'm going to face from multiple angles. It would seem to me that that's the one you're going to talk to because they're the ones being the most realistic. They're the ones looking for advice. They're looking to the ones to mitigate the downside. Is that a fair statement?
1: Absolutely. Because at least it shows that they they understand what the current circumstances are. Because too many of these founders are really pie in the sky. And they're discounting all the risk. And they, all they see is the rewards of their glorious vision and dream. And they can they can literally taste it as a success. But they're not focused on all the risks between now and then. And those founders that can't see the risks now are going to fail. Most of them are going to fail. Some of them will get lucky. But you know the reality is, is who wants to invest in luck? I'm more interested in investing in you know in uh, it's 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 there's no sure thing in the startup world there you know if, if you invest in startup founders you are going to lose money not you know you won't win every time you, you're almost like a, a minute a miniature venture capitalist where essentially you you're going into this knowing that you might get a couple of big wins that are going to carry everything forward and there's going to be a few more losses you know than the than the big wins and you also have to have a very realistic time frame time horizon a lot of my investments I won't ever see any potential ROI for 3 to 5 years minimum so for investors that don't understand that and are going to be in a need for an exit or a liquidity event in the first three years, that's gonna put undue pressure on the founding team to manifest something that isn't really natural and po- and maybe even possible. So, you know, there has to be a real, you know, I can also say this, don't take money from anybody. Just because you can get money doesn't mean um, that you should take money from the wrong investor. Know who your investors are. It's another one of the reasons why I like the, surround yourself with people who can create uh, warm introductions through family and friends, because, you know, I have been involved in a situation where a pump and dump um, guy, was able to invest in one of the companies and then took that company for a ride. And it was a, and the company ended up out of business and it was a bad situation. So you need to understand who you're getting involved in. I've even been involved in a situation where somebody was fronting for somebody else as an investor who the SEC had already banned because of all kinds of SEC violations. And so, you, you know, this person was simply acting as a front to avoid the SEC ban. And you, so know your investor just because they smile and they say how great you are and that they want to invest their money. Just also be careful. This is, you know, the, to some degree, it's like um, uh, a marriage and you don't get married to everybody you date a lot of people before you get married the more people you date as a founder that are on the investor side the better you will be at learning how to date and how to pick out the better ones and the investors themselves will appreciate those that have dated a bunch of other investors and know how to deal with investors talk to investors and you know and like you just mentioned larry the ones that essentially know their risks and are happy to put all their cards face up those people to me are golden because at least we're all we're all having a conversation that is based on our mutual understanding of reality rather than I'm going to hold car- some of my cards really close to the vest so that the investor can't see all of these things. They don't need to know that I just got, you know, divorced last year and, uh, and that um, I have uh, bankruptcy in my past and all these things that I'm eventually going to find out, you know, but with through due diligence, you know, but you're going to you're going to hide them from me and then you're going to hope that I don't notice. Those things are not healthy and don't work. All cards face up when you are a startup, all cards face up is going to work better than some cards face down. If you have us guessing on a whole bunch of things and we see a lot of cards face down, I can tell you this is just me. I can't speak for every investor. But when I see cards face down, I get scared. What's under that card that I don't know? Should I be here? No, I should be with somebody who's all cards are face up and I can at least see. So, you know, just because you make something that is so sexy and amazing, you know, and also don't tell me as a as a founder, you're going to miss out on the next big thing, Oh, you know, and blame me for not wanting to invest in you. Wrong attitude.
0: And you got to do it by Tuesday.
1: Investors aren't, we're not um, that our motivation isn't that we're going to miss out on something. Our motivation is we don't want to lose money on things that are so obvious that we're going to kick ourselves for being sort of an idiot, not following our investment thesis and our, our wisdom. And so, you know, I'd rather make less money on a deal and be happy with the team and happy with the way it went than to be a reckless investor chasing every like, you know, moonshot just because it was pitched to me as a moonshot. I am a moonshot investor. I mean, there's no doubt. I I love the moonshot world, but I'm really careful about who I invest in in the moonshot space because the odds of moonshots actually turning into real value are even less than the non-moonshot. So, I mean, this is now we're moving into very high risk, yeah, high return potential, but very high risk uh, space.
0: So, tell us more about what a moonshot investor looks for and does from a from your assessment of risk to invest to looking for your returns.
1: So, I got um, uh, 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 there's a guy uh, out of uh, MIT um, who wrote a book about disruptive technology about ten or fifteen years ago, and I got really intrigued by even just the words disruptive technology. And, you know, I I do like disruptive technology in the right ways. Like, you know, we, like, if you can, like, a moonshot to me is something that either disrupts a tech, disrupts an industry, um, uh, or it creates a new industry in a way where nobody had actually ever gone before. And, um, These are really high risk stuff. So like what I'm invested in now, I'll give a few examples because uh, just the category of moonshot is too big of a category without some uh, guardrails around it to even have a conversation. I'm invested in a company that is, I, we believe is solving sepsis, which kills 11 million people every single year, mostly in hospitals. And the reason why I'm doing this is my mother died of sepsis, my mother-in-law died of sepsis, and my grandmother died of sepsis. And so I never really knew what sepsis was. I only heard of things like cancer and pneumonia killing people. I didn't know even the word sepsis, but it it became forced on me through life experiences. And it turns out that sepsis is the massive inflammation event that, uh, that takes place in the body to counteract um, infection or disease, and that massive inflammation event actually damages the organ so much that you have organ failure and death, and it isn't the disease or the infection that kills you. It's essentially the body's reaction and the massive inflammation that takes place. Mm -hmm. We all saw that with COVID. People were dying not of the COVID infection, they were dying from the massive inflammation event that made it impossible for them to breathe and created pneumonia conditions and essentially damaged organs beyond control. And so weak bodies essentially died. So this is a company that has a medical device that essentially pulls out the galactin-3 protein out of the bloodstream to attach to an aphoresis machine, which is like a blood filtering machine that every hospital has. And these are gonna be inline disposable little blood filter devices that pull out the glycan three protein, which is the major. We believe the causal effect of the massive inflammation event. If we can keep the inflammation events down in the body, even when somebody has sepsis, someone has cancer, someone has COVID, then all these other modalities and um, uh, treatments will be possible. None of them work when the when the body is in massive inflammation. So the reason why I'm invested in this company and why I'm so. Um, So emotionally attached to this company is that we truly have a pathway that we've already proven at animal level works. We have a team of people all the way to the Stanford professors and people who believe in what we're doing. We have we've gotten 1.7 million from the National Institutes of Health to back us already and 5 million that we raised in cash and a bunch of other momentum that is all showing me that we are on the right pathway to solving one of the biggest problems on the planet. So in this case, like, you know, this is a moonshot to save 11 million people a year, which is not insignificant. Another moonshot of mine. Is we have um, a technology in another company that I believe is the most important technology to solving climate change. So there's a lot of different people, different perspectives on what to do about the climate. But at the end of the day, um, smokestacks and the pipes um, that are uh, emitting all of the crap, uh, air pollution, and CO2 that are coming out of the uh, cars, trucks. Uh, cargo ships, everything that moves on the planet that's burning fuels, all are contributing to a nonstop amount of bad stuff going into our environment. We can all mostly agree on that, Mm -hmm. even though volcanoes can essentially... Uh, d- double or triple the amount of all the bad stuff in the atmosphere just by natural reaction, but there are some things that we can solve. So, a guy out of the U.S. Pentagon invented a a coating that goes on the inside of pipes that are attached to fuel vehicles or smokestacks, and that coating itself creates a um, an environment where trans- it trans it transforms the bad molecules into good molecules. And we've done six independent tests to prove that when we attach a muffler with our coating attached to a diesel generator, we can eliminate almost all of the bad stuff coming out of a dirty diesel generator. And we're we're slowly moving our our way down a, a testing pathway to proving that we have a very, very simple solution that we can license to every polluter worldwide. And if they just add the coating, which it could be hopefully sprayed like a spray paint, Hmm. Inside of pipes, we can literally have a huge impact on what is going on right this moment without having to go and um, unearth all this lithium to try and create electric batteries for everything, which causes lots of pollution and other issues just trying to sure. find all that stuff, you know, our solar panels. All these other things, it's it's solving a solution to the existing infrastructure that we already own and control as humanity, and fixing it at the point at the source of the pollution being um, actually created. So when you know, in this particular case, an inventor came to me who had retired from the U.S. Pentagon for health reasons. He wanted to solve this problem. He read 1,100 white papers of what everybody was doing in air pollution and emissions. And he concluded that there was a solution that had previously been figured out by many, many scientists, but nobody put it all together into a simple actual solution. He came to me, we formed a company. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go into business with him and be the first investor in his company was because he was open-minded to suggestions. He didn't want to be the CEO. He wanted to basically just bring the solution to the team. And he knew where his strength was and where his weaknesses were. He wasn't trying to pretend to be everything to everybody. He was all cards face up. So I was like, wow, moonshot potential, all cards face up. And I truly like him, and I met his wife and I liked his wife, and I liked these people, and you know these are the intangibles you know I want to like who I'm spending my time with, and he is so such an adorable, wonderful, wonderful personality that you know it made sense for me to want him to spend and now it's been five years of r and d and research. I first took him to a university in California to prove out that this would even work, and the professors, when we first talked to them were like, this can't possibly work. And then they looked into it and they came back with a report. Oh my God, this could work. And so I've been, you know, I was taking a chance on a guy, you know, without even at that point, proof that this would work based on a gut instinct as to how I could work with him and the potential of what it could mean. The same with the doctor who invented sepsis. I originally started to work with him without any you know agreement we literally had a handshake deal It was basically the same in both of these moonshot cases I started out with handshake arrangements just to see if I was comfortable and over time things started to fall into place as a result of that we went over and it made sense and then I you know became uh, owner owners and founders of these companies but uh, you know sometimes. And here's another thing that I do that's a little different than a, a lot of investors. I will sometimes do handshake deals because I'm a. I don't. I feel like I need a trial period too. To even if I'm going to put some money into something or I'm going to uh, put my time into it. In some cases, it's better for me to let the current founder show me who they really are by me being involved with them for a short period of time before we actually get it's like dating before getting married, you know, and make sure we're compatible. Not all investors are like that. I'm in a unique position where I have a deal flow that is so extraordinary and people that are lined up out the door that want to get to me that I can afford to do these sort of more handshake arrangements in the very beginning just to see if there's compatibility or not. You may like when you're dating for a husband or a wife, you might think you're compatible just by looking at them from across the room. But then when you start to like actually spend time with them, you realize, oh, no, we're not compatible at all so you know and investors sometimes don't get a lot of time with these folks to find out if they really are compatible or not and you and some of you who are looking for investors to make snap decisions and you know you've made a five-minute presentation and you show me a deck and somehow we're supposed to just say yes we're writing a check. Understand we want to know if we're compatible with you. We want to date you a little bit. We want to get to know you a little bit. We don't just jump into bed instantly. And the ones that are just jumping into bed with you, you should be very nervous about, because that is a sign that they may not necessarily be the smartest and shrewdest investors, and that may come back and hurt you someday, unless it's through family and th- friends. The family and friends networks are so critical to the startup ecosystem that those that fail to recognize its importance do so at their own peril. And that's why I'm like the biggest uh, proponent of talking about how to improve your team so you have more family and friends connections. The person who invented this may come from a family that's flat out broke They have no relatives to turn to. There's nobody that they can even envision that would be a family and friends that would put even a penny into them. There's some really amazing technologies that are in the hands of people who are truly, truly poor. If you just look at it from an economic perspective, poor. Not poor in personality and all kinds of other things, but just poor from economics. And so, but these are the same people who if they would simply add to their team, those folks that have family and friends networks that are the more golden networks, then they're going to see that they can move this thing along and they can sprint instead of getting stuck. And when you're stuck, I can almost always um, uh, find that it's a human resource deficiency as to why you're stuck. It could be that the R&D didn't turn out right or there was a failure in some other thing. Yeah, it could be those two. Um, most likely it's that you don't have people on your team who know the right people and you're literally floundering because of that. And so then you're going to end up going to all these uh, service providers who have their hand out and they want you to basically give them money. And, you know, that money is not going to lead to solving the problem. So, you know, um, that's at least that's my opinion.
0: That's some great insight, Mark. And so when I think about all the examples you gave us, what's the one kind of common thread of the risk that most startups and founders just overlook.
1: Well, I want to say time. It always takes twice as long and twice as much money than you than a founder thinks to get the job done. So, those that I think that there's unrealistic expectations both in how quickly you can get the company to a certain milestone and also, how fast you can raise the money. And it, founders aren't prepared for both of those to be, uh, you know, usually twice as long as expected. And during that period where it's beyond where they originally thought things would be good, founders can move into states of depression, emotional issues, having um, not just health issues, but also. Um, Um, uh, money issues that lead to, you know, breakups of of relationships and all kinds of problems that then feed into a lot of negative energy on the startup. And so unrealistic expectations as to what they're getting themselves into, to me, is one of the big risks of a, a number of founders. Another risk of founders is you need to You need to go into it with the idea that if things don't materialize within a certain reasonable period of time, and I usually say to the founders, double whatever those numbers are that you were expecting and plan for that. And if you can plan for that and it isn't too uncomfortable, proceed forward. But at a certain point, if it isn't working, you need to know it's time to exit and stop this thing you know, not enough founders realize that they shouldn't actually be doing what they're doing. And here's another thing that is really important. Some of these founders start off in year one with here's our solution to this problem. And then in year two, they're still looking for money and they're trying to advance the company and get it going. And without them even realizing another company, two, three, or 10 companies in the startup or even already big monster companies saw the same problem and are now addressing it with a solution that, and they're blind to all these other competitive solutions that are coming to market. Market timing is very important. Now, a number of founders have been taught, first to market, get first to market, that's so important. Actually, maybe, maybe not. Sometimes it's great to watch somebody else go and flame out and fail so you can learn what they did wrong. And market timing isn't exactly like something anybody can say that they know 100% for sure how it works. There was examples of Facebook before Facebook became what it became. You know, Facebook came at the right time. Three years earlier wasn't the right time, it turned out. You know, a lot of these big tech companies, these big disruptive companies, they had the benefit of right timing. Or they got in and it took a little bit, a couple of years before the market caught up to them and then they took off and sprinted. So you don't always know when the market is ready. I will say this to um, most founders. because they don't oftentimes know this. Um, ask 20 people that you personally know whether what you're working on, you know, whether they would be the, you know, let's say you're selling a consumer products. Find 20 people and pitch your consumer product to them with a, per, with a particular price and see who's interested. If everybody tells you, oh, it's too expensive, I wouldn't pay that much, that might be an early indication that you don't have good product fit you have a great idea, you have a solution that is, yeah, it's a real solution, but it's not an economical solution that anybody's gonna care about at the, those economics. The companies that I appreciate the most, the startups I appreciate the most, are always doing sort of like what I would call study group, even if they're you know uh, free, but they're ask, constantly asking a lot of people their opinions about what it is they're working on to get market feedback, feedback from others, you know and the teams that get a lot of feedback usually figure out how to fit their their product or their service or their solution into the market better than those that are going to try and outguess the market be smarter than the market don't try and be smarter than the market there's a one i'll give you an example of of why i know this works um how many people have you ever met that have had more than one successful exit most of the people that you have met that have had an exit, they've only had one big monster success. If it was so easy to then replicate a second monster success, a a successful exit, you know, they would all be doing it. But part of it is because you can't just always know what the market is going to want and when they're gonna want it. And so, you know, there's a lot more that goes into all of this. And I do know a lot of people who have exited multiple times and those people tend to have better instincts but if you really dive deep deep into how they were able to get multiple exits. It's usually because they were smart enough to ask a lot of questions of a lot of people and figure out what the marketplace really wanted, not what they thought the marketplace wanted. You know, people, companies that essentially will go to the buyers they the If you, if you know who the top 10 buyers are that you're going to eventually want to go and sell this to whatever it is, go talk to them now and tell them what you're planning on doing and see what the reaction is if they're if they're all yawning at you then you know you're not going they're not going to be waking up uh, and, and more excited when you come back to them a year from now you know and ideally so many of you founders think that you need to raise money from investors when you've already built it what you really need is scale up revenues you don't need more you know, when I, when I see something that's already built and then it's stuck and you need investors in order to get it unstuck, that's a red flag to me. You know, I'd rather see you not have to dilute the existing shareholders by just selling what you've already got, even if it's not the best and final solution. It might be version 1.0 and you're, and you're going to come out with 2.0 later, but at least start selling. And if you can't sell it and I, you can't and if I find out you haven't even talked to your you know, top 10 potential prospective buyers about what you've already got. I know you have the wrong team. It doesn't make any logical sense to me. Show me how you're talking with the people who are gonna give you purchase orders. And then I'll understand how this business is gonna operate. And then how much money do we need to get to the point where those purchase order people are gonna give us real purchase orders. And then let's go and finance those purchase orders instead of get investor dollars in because you can finance purchase orders if they come from the right buyers. There's so anyways, I. <laughs> Half of the challenge I have is I have too many opinions about how these things all work and I end up spending a lot of my time with founders literally just teaching, mentoring, or, um, you know, giving them my advice, of which, you know, not all of it is going to be correct. I don't have any, uh, I I don't believe I'm 100% right in any of this. And, uh, but I do bring a lot of uh, life experiences Having been in both the founder side and on the investor side to the table, that I just usually want to see being discussed and thought about by the current team, and you know I want those conversations to be able to take place early rather than later when we're stuck. And you know, oftentimes if we have these conversations early, the founders will keep that in the back of their mind and prevent us from getting ourselves in these situations. When a startup gets stuck, it's hard to get that momentum going again. Like the companies that have that momentum and you know it when you've got it, where you've been pushing that ball, it's a huge ball. It's been harder than hell. You're just trying to get it to move. You're pushing, you're pushing and pushing, and finally it starts to move on its own. And now all of a sudden things are starting to manifest on its own instead of you having to push everything. You'll feel it if you get to that stage. And you know the key is once you get that ball rolling, keep it rolling. Because once it stops again, then uh, you got to push, and uh, so hard to get the ball rolling again. So you know, um, and investors like to invest in something where they see momentum. And when they see companies stuck, it causes lots of problems, uh, including investors concern as to why did you get stuck? Why did the ball stop rolling? And is it, the ball gonna stop rolling again? And so, you know, and the longer that you wait to address the problem that you're stuck, the the more the the more visible that red flag is, you know. Oh, how long have we been talking?
0: <laughs> Quite a while. And it's very interesting, Mark. So let me kind of start going down Uh, A couple of final questions and uh, specifically about crowdfunding, because as you you talk about crowdfunding uh, and the next stages of needing funds, do investors, maybe not in your space, but a little bit uh, later stage, do they look at crowdfunding as a positive or a negative?
1: I hate crowdfunding. So this is, again, my opinion unless it's a consumer product that is extraordinarily widely popular um crowdfunding to me is um not where i would put my energy and time into i think there was a moment for crowdfunding where it actually um made sense for a few people but now that it's been out there a while um i'm just i uh there let's put none of the companies that i've invested in have i wanted them to go and do crowdfunding i just don't think that that's where the energy needs to be it takes so much time and energy to do crowdfunding you have to convince so many more investors and um and the other thing is is that um i'm always concerned about who has legal standing that can sue the startup so this is another situation that's one of my risk fears if you bring the wrong investor in and they file a lawsuit, even if it's frivolous for any reason at all, um That's enough to basically take the company down because you have to disclose that to every investor that's coming in and nobody wants to invest in a company that's in litigation. So now all of a sudden you're doing crowdfunding and I'm just waiting for the moment that the sharky lawyers start to figure out that they can invest five bucks or 10 bucks into a startup and then file a lawsuit a month later that somehow the materials that they received and the disclosures weren't appropriate and even if they've signed something that says that they won't, but they have at least some legal standing to get in front of a judge. And then they basically hold these comp- startups hostage for money in order to you know let them go so that they can go on with their lives and try and you know be a somebody. I haven't seen it happening yet, but my gut tells me it's only a matter of time that a cottage industry of lawyers start to prey on startups by taking advantage of a legal standing that they can gain by doing a crowd fund, by investing almost nothing in crowdfunding. So that's just an example of a risk that I I perceive as not worth doing simply. For that reason, even though I have yet to see that this is actually happening on any level at all. it's all it's all just in my head. What I rather see is sophisticated investors that are part of the team that add value to the team that uh, you know essentially are bringing more to the team than just their money. It's different when the company's bigger, but when a company is small, you need every it's all hands on deck and you need all the wisdom and all the encouragement and all the ideas and all the connections possible in order to migrate through very choppy difficult waters. So I'm not I have my yeah, I I'm not going to have anything positive to say about crowdfunding, and I apologize to those that are disappointed to hear that from me. But that's just my uh, opinion at the moment. It could change in the future if some laws change, if Congress changes some things, if a few other things change. But right now, I just it's too risky for me personally.
0: So, Mark, before we let you go, let's talk about venture starters. Tell us about how that started. Uh, what your objectives are there. I know that you've gone through some changes from the open mic to two minutes to 90 seconds to get people to focus, which has been really helpful and makes it a little more pithy. I'd uh, love to hear about what some data about it, how to, if you've done any transactions through it how it's helped other people.
1: So Venture Starters is a beauty pageant event and, you know, Fifty people will come and pitch on a Wednesday. We have a we have an event every Wednesday that's essentially um, a two to three hour event, um, and between 100 and 500 people show up to the event, um, depending on when we we've held the events and what the themes are for the event. Our community itself, the venture stars community, has grown to uh, the last I looked over 12,000 LinkedIn members have been somehow involved in Venture Starters since I started it last August. Um, uh, And amazingly, we have uh, in the range of uh, five or six thousand people who read every single email that we send out about whatever we're doing. So we're, we're building a nice community. What I love about Venture Starters is that I think we're one of the few places where you can go and pitch for free and attend for free. I I personally make this event um, free to everybody. My family made the decision that there needs to be a place where startup founders can come and uh, practice how to pitch in front of investors, get feedback from the community, get constructive criticism from the community, and improve their odds of success by uh, building a network of people who are interested in helping and giving guidance. And um, even if it's just cheerleading, not all of the founders that come to Venture Starters are gonna be successful. We've had funding offers of as high as $11 million, a few $3 million deals are in the works right now. Uh, There's a 4.8 million there's a low small deals that are set like 75,000. We have investors that show up and they take those deals outside of Venture Starters. I don't participate in them. I don't make anything in the middle of them. You know, they just simply are using Venture Starters as a place to meet and then go and have, you know, conversations outside of Venture Starters. Nobody is um it required to circle back and tell me what the results are of the people that they meet. You know, we're literally just a open to the public, free community paid for by my family. And we're really enjoying the experience. Um, I love being able to see uh, the number of founder pitches every single week. I enjoy being a mentor to many. I see a lot of great ideas and solutions that are going to be successful because they found the right people through Venture Starters. I'm seeing a lot of people who are listening to my advice to go and advertise on linkedin um, and uh, find the people that they need i'm finding companies that i'm personally offering to run ad campaigns on linkedin targeting my network on linkedin which is quite golden and is producing some really outstanding results for a lot of startups um, that i want to cherry pick out of the crowd that i want to make sure will be successful um, and for reasons that are uh, uh, mostly subjective and just on gut instinct um, and I'm trying to move the ball forward for as many people as I can as fast as possible. I think the, the VC model has um, not collapsed, but it's gotten wonky in the last couple of years. The angel investment market did collapse from April of last year when the stock market started to tumble. And uh, there's less angel investors in the market now than before. Um, There's a number, I mean, the private equity guys are everywhere, and they're still aggressive. And they are happy to find um, distress in the world right now because that's opportunity for them. Uh, But they're not ideally suited for the startup community because their investment thesis is basically take it over, own it, operate it. And a lot of the private equity guys are coming out of the family office businesses. And family offices are starting to shift more towards the private equity than the invest in startup model because there's a lot of op- there's more opportunity nowadays um, than before. It's more attractive, I think, in some regards. So the environment for startups is not ideal by any stretch right now. It's a very difficult environment, and I think that as a result of me launching Venture Starters during this particular window, it's one of the reasons why it was good. the market timing was right, and we've become so popular and we've grown so big. So. Um, where venture starters goes in the future i just don't know it was an accident in it that (laughs) i even created it and the very first meeting i had on zoom we had 17 people and it wasn't a big to do it was literally just me throwing up my hands because too many decks were being sent my way so i invited five investor friends on a saturday afternoon to have a zoom with about a dozen uh founders that had sent me decks in the previous week and i just said it's uh, on saturday if everybody wants to just show up on zoom let's just have one big zoom meeting and see what in the hell happens i didn't have time to look at all 12 of the decks i was curious and quite frankly i like elevator pitches i learn more about the people if they're forced to do an elevator pitch than if they pitch in front of a slideshow and it informs me in a way that makes me want to uh, uh Helps me decide who I want to actually see a slideshow from, because I don't want you know I've been schnookered too many times by people who are really good at memorizing a speech with a really beautiful slideshow, and I don't want to be in that business anymore. I want to see the people, feel the people, see how how they communicate verbally without a slide deck first to understand if I'm even interested in them as a person. And if impressed with them in in some sort of other way than that they can put together pretty slides or pay somebody to put together pretty slides. So um, we're basically right now focused on elevator pitches. uh, But that said, I'm now looking at launching another uh, set of um, of, uh, services for founders that will be different than what we've done in the first year of venture starters that will allow for uh, presentations of decks and other more sophisticated ways for investors to connect with the founders, but it's still gonna start with a two, either a 90 second or a two minute elevator pitch. Last night we did 90 seconds instead of two minutes and I loved it. If you can't tell your story in 90 seconds, I, you know, you gotta be able to at least tell it and get me at least mildly interested. So um, internally my team will decide whether we wanna stick with the 92nd clock or the two minute clock. But part of this was also that just so many people were coming to our event, trying to pitch that we literally were leaving a dozen or more people stranded at the end of the event because we just didn't have time for everybody. So, and that was based on a two minute clock. And so the 92nd clock might work better at getting more people an opportunity for FaceTime in front of the audience. So we're experimenting, you know, I I don't want to claim I'm an expert at building a community or being an influencer. I've never done any of this before. This is all basically learning as I go. And, um, but I do believe instinctively that there needs to be a place where founders can come for free. There's so many places you can go and pay. But there needs to be a place for free because some of the best ideas and some of the best solutions on the planet earth are in the hands of people who can't afford to pay right now and i'm hoping to peel off a few of the ones that you know are extraordinary and help steer them into a path where they actually might get funded and get out of the garage and become a something you know there are some really important solutions that i am aware of through venture starters that you know literally can save lives, uh, improve our environment, improve our living conditions, um, you know, and all kinds of other things that I believe are the future of the planet. So, and then my next phase um, that I'm very fascinated with is having college students and high school founders have a pl- an event that we're going to start to produce where they can come and learn how to pitch in front of investors Very nice. because it's never too early to learn. And if I can get them to start learning at a younger age, then when they get to the point where they really are going to be the movers and shakers of the world, they're going to be far more equipped to be able to make sure those ideas they're manifesting get to the finish line instead of uh, in the fire keep because so many 19 out of 20 in my opinion end up out of business so anyways those are some of my you know general ideas i don't know exactly where we're going with venture starters i'm open minded to it and i will say and if you've attended my events you know i encourage people in the community to give me their advice and their opinions just like i tell founders they need to basically ask everybody their opinions so that they get it right i feel the same way about a free service you still still want to ask everybody their opinion get the advice so that you're providing the right service the right um platform for everybody so it makes sense because i'm not the smartest guy in the room i don't want to be the smartest guy in the room i'm happiest when other people in the room are way smarter than me and i can learn and listen and suck up you know great uh, information from them and you know i'm hoping to attract those brilliant brilliant people in the startup ecosystem to hang out at venture starters because I think that that's how we then find amazingness in mirroring them to these founders that have great startup ideas. And we'll see how it's a social science experiment that happens to be a very expensive hobby of mine right now. But I'm in thoroughly enjoying it and, uh, you know, hoping to grow it in the next year.
0: Well, we might have to do a separate podcast for the high schoolers and college people that you want to do the training for. So, Mark, I think the information you've provided today has been really terrific. I think there's a lot of big information nuggets that people can take away from this. And I wanna make sure that business leaders, investors, and all of our listeners get as much value from it as possible. So thank you so much for that. To recap some of the key takeaways from the discussion with Mark in episode 104 for invest, investment valuation process is really about venture starters. Uh, an environment for founders and investors to go and listen to this open forum. Uh, tune in to Mark on uh, LinkedIn and find out all the information. Uh, we learned about risks that need to be evaluated in startups and rapidly growing companies and how to build the right teams so you have the people around you that can help you be successful. So Mark, thank you so much for your time today, for being on the show, sharing all this information with us. This information will help us convey to our audience, and expose the, and give them the tools they need to expose business blind spots as they grow their businesses. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you. If you can just let people know, they can register to come to a Venture Starters event at VentureStarters.com. And I'm available at Mark at if anybody wants to reach out to me.
0: Well, terrific. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and joining this What the Risk podcast, designed to be a safe space to learn about risk, how to think about risk, and how to expose business blind spots. This podcast is about empowering you as business leaders to reduce the stress of the unknown risks in your business, as well as the stress of decision-making by being able to identify and mitigate potential risks through the right level of due diligence. So here are three quick next steps that I need you to do. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss future episodes and give us a five-star rating. Share the podcast with a peer. Both of you will gain visibility to what you didn't know existed in the blind spots. And go to riskblindspots.com, that's plural because we all have them, riskblindspots.com, to become a Blind Spot Insider. You'll get exclusive advance notice of the next two episodes, so you can submit questions, topics, and suggestions for our show and tell us if we have any blind spots. Continue with us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and turn those what the risk moments into I've got this victories.